1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We are working our way through the books of Samuel, chapter 15 this morning, and we have a lot to consider from this significant chapter, so we're going to get right to it by reading from God's Word. So let's pick it up in verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over His people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to the destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Let's pray now and ask for his grace to hear as we ought. Father, we come now humbly before you, recognizing our need for the work of your Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the things of God. You dwell in unapproachable light, Father. You are incomprehensible to human minds. You are infinite, and the finite cannot grasp you. Please, God, we ask you for grace, that we would hear your word from 1 Samuel 15 as we ought to hear it, and that we would respond with faith and obedience as we ought to respond. Lord, give me grace. Keep me from error. Help these things that we're about to consider together to be spoken in truth and in plainness. Pray that we would have discernment, Father, to know what is true and to hold fast until the last day. We ask these things in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Some chapters of the Bible are especially adept at raising questions. And 1 Samuel 15 is a good example of that. I'm sure you noticed as we read that there are a host of issues raised in these 35 verses. What are we to make of the fact that God orders the complete destruction of the Amalekites? How is it that God both has regrets and does not have regret? Was Saul's life doomed from the very start? These questions are difficult, friends, and they demand our consideration. And yet, even though the questions are pressing, the main thrust of 1 Samuel 15 is actually much narrower. It's much more pointed. This is a passage about the heart, both God's heart and ours. 
Over the course of this chapter, we learn what brings grief to God and what brings delight. We see His patience and His wrath, His compassion and His firmness, all flowing from the heart of the same glorious God who does not change. So we see God's heart. At the same time, these verses also show us humanity's heart. One theologian has said that the life of Saul is a picture of humanity left to itself. And that's true. Apart from God's grace, what do we find in the human heart? We find what we see in Saul's life. Rebellion, pride, self-deception, and self-preservation. That's the human heart apart from God's grace. So by all means, let's consider those difficult, those difficult questions as they come to us, and I hope that we will. But let's not lose sight of what matters most. This chapter is about who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. As we look now to the passage, I'd like to draw your attention to four truths concerning these heart issues. Four truths. The first comes in verses 1-3 to where we see the justice of judgment. The justice of judgment. The prophet Samuel has returned to the scene and he has a specific message for Saul. There's no ambiguity here. There's no room for misunderstanding. Saul is to wipe out the Amalekites. Why? Because during the exodus from Egypt, the Amalekites had preyed on Israel's most vulnerable, the weak, the elderly, the stragglers. And now the time has come for God's Vengeance. Nothing. Not even a single animal is to be spared. This is Saul's mission. And as the Lord's anointed king, Saul is bound to obey. He must wipe out the Amalekites. And so we come up against one of those difficult questions. What are we to make of this severe command? What does this reveal about the heart of God? Before we answer that question, however, I want to make sure we're asking it in a right way. There is a right way and a wrong way to consider God's command in verse 3. The wrong way is to pridefully demand God give an account for His actions as though God, we were God's judge and He were the defendant who needed to justify Himself. If you read some of the so-called scholars on this passage, that's how they approach verse 3 with the assumption that God has done something wrong and now He must give an account of what He has done. Friends, that's not only the wrong way to ask this question, it's also dangerous. The living God is holy and righteous and pure. He never does evil. He's never even had an evil desire. Whatever God does is right. And he does not have to defend himself. He does not adhere to a standard outside of himself. He is the standard. So, and listen to me very clearly, if we're asking this question from a prideful heart that seeks to judge God, then we should put our hand over our mouth so that we don't blaspheme the Holy One. He is the Creator. We are the creature. And He can do what He pleases. And if you don't come to grips with that, then you may not know the God of the Bible. That's the wrong way to ask it. There is, however, a right way to ask this question. And that's what I trust we're doing this morning. 
The right way comes to God in humility. Acknowledging His holiness, but also seeking further understanding of His character. The right way comes to God the way that a child comes to his father and says, Dad, I don't understand, but I want to understand. That's what I hope we're doing. And when we come with this attitude, the Lord does indeed give us insight into His character. Verse 3 is a demonstration of God's wrath against sin. Remember, friends, all sin is against God. And therefore, all sin deserves God's active opposition. That's what God is doing here. He's pouring out wrath on the Amalekites for their sin. And the Bible is clear, friends. God's wrath is always just. It's always deserved. That's true here. The Amalekites are not innocent. They ruthlessly attacked God's people and they stubbornly refused to acknowledge the Lord as the one true God. In fact, later in this chapter, we learn the Amalekites haven't changed much since the Exodus. Their king, Agag, continues to attack the helpless, even depriving mothers of their children. These are not a God-fearing people. These are a God-hating people. And so with complete justice, God prepares to pour out the wrath the Amalekites deserve. Friends, I know this is difficult, but we must understand that God's justice is a reason to praise Him. We shouldn't apologize for God. Instead, we should praise Him that He does not ignore sin. We should praise Him for His justice that will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. We don't want a God who winks at evil. You see, the truth of God's justice is essential for our comfort and our confidence. Think about it this way. Our hope for a new heaven and a new earth rests in part on God's justice. Because God will not allow His creation to suffer under sin forever, we have confidence there is a day coming when God will put every wrong to right. And that, friend, should give us comfort as God's people. His justice should give us comfort. But there is a caution here as well. In order to know that comfort, we must first see ourselves in the same position as the Amalekites. As sinners who deserve God's holy wrath. Honestly, that's the more pressing question from verse 3, at least in my mind. Before we ask, why did God destroy the Amalekites? We should instead ask, why hasn't God destroyed me? We're no different. We're no different. Sure, our specific sin might look different, but we're just as much rebels as the Amalekites were. So the more pressing question is, why hasn't God destroyed me for my sin? If you're a Christian this morning, then you know the answer is only the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of the Gospel that the holy God would reconcile His grace and His justice by sending His Son to pay for the sins of His people. I know we've heard it before, but we're slow learners, so let's hear it again. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's the good news. And for the Christian, that's the answer. We're We're not destroyed because Christ took the wrath we deserved. If you're not a Christian this morning, then the answer for you is God's mercy. Every day that you're alive is an evidence of God's mercy and His patience. 
He is withholding the judgment that you deserve so that you might repent of your sin and trust in Christ. That was true for the Amalekites and it's true for you. God waited 300 years before He destroyed the Amalekites. 300 years to repent! What kind of patience is this? What kind of merciful God is this? So what about you? Will you see that every day the sun rises on your life, that's God's mercy calling you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ? This is why the Bible says that God's mercies are new every day. Every day the sun rises, it says to the Christian, you've been reconciled in Christ. And it says to the non-Christian, today is the day to repent and believe. If you don't know Him, I pray that you will see His patience and His mercy at work right now. That breath you just took is His mercy. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ by God's grace and for the eternal good of your soul. I know it's difficult, friends, but this opening truth is is unavoidable. You can't get into this chapter without getting past verse 3. The destruction of the Amalekites reveals the justice of God's judgment. And that should drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first truth. As we continue on in the passage, we see it's not just the Amalekites who sin and fall short of the glory of God. Saul does as well. And from Saul, we take our second truth, the subtlety of sin. The subtlety of sin. Beginning in verse 4, Saul makes preparations to carry out God's commands. He marshals an army and he sets out for the Amalekites' territory. The actual battle is described only in passing in verse 7. So everything appears to be in order. But the following verses tell us otherwise. In fact, verses 8 to 15 paint a picture of how sin worked in Saul's heart. The emphasis here is not just on sin's power that turned Saul's heart away, but on sin's subtlety that blinded Saul in the process. Notice with me how this picture unfolds. First off, Saul rebels. Notice verse 8. Saul devotes all the Amalekites to destruction with the exception of the king, Agag. So already then, Saul has broken God's commandments. To spare even one person was to disobey. But verse 9 indicates it was even more treacherous than that. Notice Saul and the people would not utterly destroy the livestock. That phrase, would not utterly destroy, carries the idea of being unwilling to do something. It's not just that Saul didn't carry out the command, it's that he stubbornly refused to do so. He looked at what he should do and he said, I'm not going to do it. This wasn't a mistake or an oversight. This was high-handed rebellion. This was sinning with your eyes wide open. That's what sin is, friends. It's outright rebellion against God. So Saul rebels. In response, the Lord grieves. Notice verse 11. The Lord grieves. Saul's rebellion has not gone unnoticed. The Lord sees what Saul has done. And the Lord tells Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. Here again is one of those pressing questions then. How does the sovereign God who controls all of history and whose purposes cannot be thwarted, how does that God regret? Well, it helps to remember this is the same word used back in Genesis 6 
to describe God's response to humanity's wickedness. Do you remember the scene right before God told Noah to build an ark? The Bible says humanity's sin grieved the Lord to His heart. That's the idea here. God is not saying He made a mistake in appointing Saul to be king. God doesn't make mistakes ever. And God is not saying He's caught off guard by Saul's failure. God knows all things, past, present, and future. What God is saying is that He's sorrowful over sin. That He's grieved. He is grieved to see Saul's rebellion wreck both Saul's life and the lives of so many others. You see, this is actually a good balance to the first truth that we considered. Yes, God is wrathful towards sin and His anger burns heart Uh, burns hot against wickedness. And at the same time, the Lord grieves over sin as well. Because God of all people knows the devastation sin causes in His creation. So may we never conceive of God as some cold-hearted overlord who's just in heaven waiting to pounce on people. He grieves over brokenness. Even the brokenness that He judges. The Lord is sorrowful over Saul because sin is truly a sorrowful reality. So Saul rebels. The Lord grieves. The picture then reaches its end as Saul denies. After a sleepless night, Samuel sets out to find the wayward king. He learns along the way that Saul has set up a monument to himself, which is an ominous foreshadowing of what's to come later in the chapter. And then the decisive meeting happens between prophet and king. Verse 13, Saul greets Samuel and professes his obedience. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. There's just one problem with Saul's profession. Why does Samuel hear the noise of so many livestock? You see, the animals testify against Saul. But when Samuel confronts Saul with the evidence, evidence... Flesh and blood evidence, when Samuel confronts him, notice what Saul does, verse 15. He denies. He blames the people, saying it was their idea to keep the livestock. Some leader he is. He blames the people. And he hides behind religious ritual, saying the plan was to use the animals for sacrifices. Now Samuel will address Saul's excuses in just a moment, but right now I want us to focus on the last line of verse 15. Notice again what Saul says. The rest we have devoted to destruction. Friends, that's a nonsensical statement. That's like saying, I've never stolen anything except for that thing I stole yesterday. You can't devote the rest to destruction. It's either all or none. It's nonsensical. So Saul's words convict him. And yet Saul doesn't see it. He's blinded by his sin. It's so striking, isn't it? Here we have Saul, surrounded by livestock, claiming to have obeyed the Lord. He can hear the animals. He can smell them. He can even see them. But he cannot see the truth those animals represent. The truth of his own disobedience. And that's the point I want to drive home to us, friends. This is what sin does. It subtly blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to the truth so that over time, we can't see the evidence that convicts us before God. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need one another. This is why we need the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. 
On our own, we're often blind to sin's presence and sin's power. We need the insight of others. We need the light of God's Word to show us ourselves. My self-perception is off, just like yours is. So I want, to, I want to ask you this morning, are you cultivating relationships where this kind of loving care might happen? Where people will see, help you see your sin so that you can grow by God's grace? Are you cultivating those kinds of relationships here in the church? They don't happen by accident. You've got to purposefully build them. And, and listen, I know it's easier to stay on the fringes and to know and be known only superficially. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be an extrovert. But I am saying that we need others. Life on the fringe for the Christian is a dangerous place to live. We need the insight of others. We need brothers and sisters like Samuel who will ask us the hard questions or who will shake us a little bit to see the evidence that's all around us that we have not obeyed. Are you cultivating those kinds of relationships? No one can do it for you. Are you cultivating those kinds of relationships? I pray that we are, all of us. For sin is not only powerful, but also subtle. That's the second truth. The subtlety of sin. Samuel's not finished. Notice verse 16. He's heard enough. And so he interrupts Saul's excuses. Stop. Be quiet. Shut your mouth. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And it's from Samuel's further message that we see the third truth, which is the delight of obedience. The delight of obedience. Verses 17 to 21 are essentially a replay of what just happened. Samuel again confronts Saul and demands an explanation, and Saul again blames the people and hides behind religious ritual. Notice his brash defiance in verse 20. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Really? He's arguing with the Lord's prophet. He refuses to submit himself to God's Word. Again, this is what sin does, friends. It blinds us and then it hardens our hearts against God's Word. The confrontation comes to a head in verses 22 and 23. This is the key moment of the chapter. Twice, Saul said they spared the livestock in order to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Understand, the Lord commanded His people to offer sacrifices. So sacrifices in and of themselves were good things to do. And it's true that they probably did intend to offer these animals as sacrifices. If you notice in verse 12, Saul was going to Gilgal, which was a place of religious worship and sacrifice. So it's likely that Saul really did intend to offer sacrifices. But good intentions don't negate disobedience. That's Samuel's point. The ends never justify the means in Christianity. Good intentions don't negate disobedience. Notice Samuel's well-known words, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, this is the heart of Saul's failure. He's misjudged the character of God. 
He's misjudged the character of God. Saul substituted ritual for obedience. Sure, Saul technically disobeyed God. I mean, technically, if you want to like parse it and be all legalistic, right? He technically disobeyed. But he assumed he could make up for it by offering a few extra sacrifices. But that's just it, friends. God doesn't need Saul's sacrifices. In fact, God doesn't care about heartless ritual. Not in the least. Saul can offer 10,000 sacrifices for 10,000 days, and still, without obedience, God would take no delight in those offerings. God is not worshipped by mere rituals, but by hearts that obey and submit to Him in faith. God doesn't care about the sacrifices. In fact, without the obedience of faith, our rituals become idolatry. Notice verse 23. Notice what Samuel says. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption, or we could say arrogance, is as iniquity and idolatry. Divination is the pagan practice of trying to control spiritual forces, and idolatry is obviously the worship of false gods. Samuel equates disobedience with those heinous sins. Do you see the connection? Saul wasn't worshiping God with those sacrifices. He was seeking to control a God of his own making. And for that, Saul is rejected as king. Notice the end of the verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Again, we see the Lord's justice. Saul has rebelled against God's kingship, so God removes Saul from Israel's kingship. This is the fruit of Saul's disobedience. He's misjudged the character of God. He's tried to worship a God of his own making. He's failed to see that God's heart delights in obedience, not ritual. Friends, the application here is profoundly important, so let me just state it directly. The only thing that pleases God is a life of obedience to His Word. The only thing that pleases God is a life of obedience to His Word. Verse 22 forces us to examine ourselves to see if we're hiding our disobedience behind a veil of religious ritual. Friends, no amount of church attendance can cover up deliberately breaking God's commandments. There is no prayer you can pray or offering you can give or work you can do that matters to God if we're blatantly disregarding His Word. The only thing that delights God's heart is obedience to His Word. Listen, I'm not saying our obedience creates our relationship with God. We belong to God by His grace through faith in Christ who obeyed God's law on our behalf. That's our gospel confidence that we stand on every day. So I'm not saying obedience creates our relationship to God. Rather, I'm urging us to remember that God's grace in a Christian's life always bears fruit in the obedience of faith. Perhaps the best way to say it is with the words of the Lord Jesus from John 14. Jesus told His disciples, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's the truth at work here in 1 Samuel 15. God's heart delights in obedience because obedience reveals that our hearts delight in Him. Ritual says that we're just using Him. 
Ritual turns Him into something that serves us. Obedience submits ourselves to Him and shows that we delight in Him. I mean, it's, it's really quite striking. Saul was, really, was willing to give animals, right? That, but that's all he was willing to give. What was he holding back? Himself. Himself. So I'm urging you to consider this question. Are there areas of your life where you're using religious activity to hide disobedience? If the answer is yes, then don't despair. Despair is the work of the evil one. If the answer is yes, don't despair. Instead, consider this moment the Lord's mercy in your life. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Anytime He shows us the truth about ourselves, even truths that convict us, we should be thankful. He's showing you the truth so that you might confess your sin, receive His forgiveness, and then begin anew to walk by faith in obedience to His Word. So don't despair, but confess. And depend on God's grace. God's heart delights in obedience because obedience reveals that our hearts delight in Him. Let's be that kind of people. That's the third truth. The delight of obedience. As we keep going in the chapter, the Lord's rejection seems to get Saul's attention. Notice what happens in verse 24. Saul acknowledges he has sinned. This certainly appears to be a change in attitude, but still there are reasons for concern. Notice verse 25. Saul asks Samuel to pardon his sin. Where's the desire for God? Where's the crying out to the Lord? It's absent. You see, there's still reason for concern with Saul. And from this concern, we see our final truth. The urgency of reconciliation. The urgency of reconciliation. Despite how things appear on the surface, Saul is not repentant. It's superficial repentance. There's no brokenness. There's no sorrow leading to change. It's all surface. And this becomes quite clear as we watch the rest of the conversation between Samuel and Saul. Notice how it unfolds. It begins with Samuel confirming the Lord's judgment. Verse 26, Samuel rejects Saul's initial confession. He's not being cold-hearted there. He has reason to doubt Saul's sincerity. So in verse 27, Samuel turns to leave. But as he does, Samuel grabs hold of, uh, Saul grabs hold of Samuel's robe and it tears. Samuel, in turn, uses this as a moment of prophetic symbolism. The Old Testament prophets liked very visual things. Just as Saul ripped Samuel's robe, so also the Lord will rip the kingdom away from Saul and give it to his neighbor, whom next week we learn is David. Then comes the all-important verse 29. Notice what Samuel says. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now what does that mean? It's another one of those pressing questions, isn't it? In verse 11, the Lord regretted making Saul king, but here in verse 29, Samuel says the Lord will not have regret. So which one is it? Does he regret or does he not have regrets? Well, the answer is it's both. It's both. God is grieved over Saul's sin. That's verse 11. But at the same time, God's decision to remove Saul as as king is final. 
That's verse 29. God is not a wishy-washy man who says one thing and then does another. God's Word is certain. He has rejected Saul as king, and that rejection will stand, even as God grieves over the very sin that brought it about. Now, some folks are bothered by this vision of God in 1 Samuel 15. It bothers some people that God is both sorrowful over sin and then certain in His judgment against that same sin. How do those things go together? These people object. How how can God do this? How can He be grieved and certain at the same time? How can He do this? That's what they object to. But perhaps that objection says more about us than it does about God. Friends, our conception of God must have room for the reality that He is beyond our comprehension. The finite can't grasp the infinite. He is beyond our comprehension. There are aspects of God's character that come to us in mystery. And that means our approach to God always begins with faith. Listen, this is the fundamental principle of Christianity. Faith precedes understanding. Faith precedes understanding. It's only by the light of faith that our minds are illumined to understand the things of God. If we demand that we understand before we believe, we're telling God, you're accountable to me, and only when you make sense to me will I submit to you. Friends, that's rebellion. That's idolatry. Faith precedes understanding. So before we say, how can he grieve and be certain at the same time, maybe we should just say, I trust you. Our our view of God is far too small and far too conditioned by what we think He ought to be. And we need to find room again for the adorable mystery that is the character of God. But that's a different sermon. So before we object and say God can't grieve over the same sin that He judges, we should pause and remember once again, He's the Creator, we're the creature, and our approach to Him always begins with faith. Or it doesn't begin at all. So, Samuel confirms the Lord's judgment against Saul. And that prompts Saul's final superficial plea. Notice verse 30. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Not the Lord my God, the Lord your God. There it is, friends. What's driving Saul's show of repentance? His own reputation. His own position. This is all politics to Saul. This isn't isn't about being broken over sin. This is about just keeping the throne. He's not concerned to be reconciled to God. Saul's deepest desire is to maintain his status in the eyes of the people. And surprisingly, uh, Samuel gives in. Notice verse 31. Samuel goes back with him. It's not clear why Samuel does this, but he does. He goes back with Saul. Perhaps it was to finish what Saul had left undone. Notice verse 32. Samuel calls for Agag and promptly does what Saul should have done. Samuel executes Agag before the Lord. And then if there was any doubt as to the Lord's verdict on Saul's kingship, notice how the passage ends. Verses 34 and 35. It's more than just a summary. The two men separate. It's a striking picture of Saul's condition. He's left to go his own way without the wisdom of God's Word. That's not to say Saul is hopelessly condemned, 
but it does remind us that the greatest tragedy in Saul's life is not his broken kingship, but his broken relationship to God. And that's what I would call us to consider here as we close. Consider the urgency of reconciliation, friends. The urgency of reconciliation. Saul missed his greatest need because he was so focused on protecting himself and on maintaining his image. He was content with superficial repentance and heartless ritual, but neither of those things could answer the most pressing need of his life to be reconciled to God. If we look ahead to the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul urging us to consider this same need. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, from Old Testament to New, this is humanity's deepest need. To be made right with the Holy One. It was Adam's need in the garden. It was Israel's need in the wilderness. It was Saul's need in this chapter. And it's our need today. More than image, more than position, more than status. We need reconciliation with the God who judges us. The question, of course, is how can this happen? Just in this chapter alone, we've seen God's wrath against sin and we've seen the deep depravity of the human heart. So the question hounds us. How can sinners like us be reconciled to this just and righteous God? Listen again to the Apostle Paul from the very next verse in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, our reconciliation is not a work that we do. Our reconciliation is not even a gift that we receive. Our reconciliation is a person. And His name is Jesus Christ. In Christ, the law of God has been fulfilled. In Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied. And therefore, in Christ and in Christ alone, there is salvation for all who will turn from their sin and trust in His holy name. Friends, this is the urgent message of Saul's life. Trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. The reality of sin is wretched and the wrath of God against sin is terrible. It is terrible. We've seen that here in this passage. But praise God, the Bible does not end with the rejected king of 1 Samuel 15. The Bible ends with a victorious king, the Lord Jesus. And in Him, there is peace with God. There is peace with God for all who believe. Amen. Let's pray.